Our scripture reading for this morning is from Ephesians chapter 3. And our text will be particularly in verses 14 to 21, but we'll read the whole chapter. It's found on page 1242 in the Black Bibles. And part of the joys or privileges of being able to come to churches and visit and speak is that you have the opportunity of picking really the best texts of Scripture. And I think sometimes as a seminary student, there can be a temptation to desire to pick obscure texts to really show whether you know your stuff. But if you can't preach the best texts, then you probably can't preach. So this is a wonderful text we have before us today, and it's, it's got to be a top ten for probably most of us in this room. Uh, but let's read, so we have the context of the whole chapter from Ephesians chapter 3. And let's hear the word of the holy and living God. For this reason... I, Paul, a prisoner for Jesus Christ on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit, in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God." Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is indeed a glorious, wonderful, and weighty text this morning. So let's pray God's help as we come to speak and to understand. 
Heavenly Father, you have given your word to light our way and guide our feet. So would you illuminate this morning by your Holy Spirit the riches of the glory of Christ, the access we have by faith in him to a wonderful Father who so loves us and gives us of his Spirit that we might know and fellowship with his wonderful beloved Son. So Lord, show us Christ this morning and lead us to fullness in him. Give us attentive ears, open hearts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. The question I want to pose as we open this morning is, what does it take to be truly happy? What does it take to be truly happy in this world? I was reading recently a chapter in a book by J.C. Ryle on a book called Practical Religion. Who doesn't need more practical religion? There was a chapter on happiness, which is something we don't often hear written about. But I thought one of the ways he defined and thought about happiness was very helpful and really stuck out to me. Here's what he said. He said, To be truly happy, the highest needs of man's nature must be met and satisfied. All must be filled up. There must be no void, no empty places, no unsupplied cravings. Until then, he is never truly happy. And he goes on to say, It is utter nonsense to pretend that food and clothing and earthly things alone can make men happy. There are soul needs. There are conscience needs. There can be no true happiness until these things are satisfied. And I love this idea of happiness as the result and effect of a full soul. Now, the problem is that in this world, people seek to fill their souls with things other than God. But because God is the creator of the soul, only God can fill the human soul such that there are no empty, void places. And my argument today is that we will best seek our happiness and also seek the glory of God when we seek to be filled with God. To be filled with God is the climaxing petition of the prayer of Paul we're looking at this morning. And we know where all these places are that the world looks for fullness, don't we? We know the world from 1 John chapter 2, how it talks of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. These are the different things people go to to seek to fill their souls. Maybe these are some of the things you go to to fill your soul. The lust of the flesh, carnal appetites for food, for sex, for pleasure, for entertainment, for fun. Lust of the eyes to have material possessions, houses, wealth, investments. The pride of life, the achievements, success, recognition. People think that these things will fill and satisfy. We know the stories of the people that get far in life, the rich and famous, and it leads to destruction. It leads to destruction of the self and the soul in seeking to fill the soul with things that will never fill the soul because only God can fill the soul. And therefore, only in God can you be truly happy. God made our souls and he made them to know him. Our souls were made to be filled with one thing, and that one thing is God. 
But our dis, our dis, as we read in Ephesians 4 earlier, we have deceitful desires. They trick us. Our desires for things of this world trick us to pursuing them to our own destruction. I love a verse in Jeremiah 2.13, which says that my people have committed two evils. This is the Lord speaking. He says, they've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. A cistern's like a vessel that you would fill up at the well. But the world, with all these things, it's like filling a broken cistern. The water leaks out. It doesn't stay, and it doesn't satisfy. And our text reminds us today that we're never filled until we're filled with God. This is a prayer of Paul for fullness, for Christian maturity, for everything good that God has available to us in the Lord Christ. We don't want to be shallow Christians. We want to go deep. And in chapter 3, as we read, Paul has been recounting the glories of the gospel, this mystery that's been unfolded in the New Testament age, that the Gentiles, all of us, this world, is now included in God's plan. And Paul's been recounting for these first three chapters uh, the great manifold wisdom of God and the glories of Christ, the glories of grace, the glories of redemption. And now in, in this prayer, at the end of this, what we would call the theological section of the book, he can't help but end in a prayer, a prayer that the church would know these truths, that the church would experience these truths, know a deeper reality in these truths. And that's what I want for us today, to desire what this passage is praying for, to have this prayer be the prayer of our heart and our deepest desire, to find fullness in God. This is a distinctly Trinitarian prayer. Uh, It starts off with the Father, then goes to the Spirit, and then ends with the Son. And so that's the way we'll be looking at it in our points today. First, we're going to see that the Father, he's the source of fullness, the source is the Father. Then we're going to see that the Spirit provides the strength by which we seek fullness in God. The Spirit's the strength. And then thirdly, that the Son and His love is the substance that fills us. The Son is the substance. The sum of all these things being fullness of God, to be filled with God. Again, my thesis is that you will best pursue God's glory and your greatest happiness when you come to the Father seeking the strength of the Spirit to know and experience the love of the Son. That is, you will best glorify and enjoy God when you're seeking to be filled with God. So first, let's look at the Father as the source, the source of fullness. If you have an empty water bottle, an empty vessel, you know, if you want to fill it, you need to go to a source. If you're out backpacking, hiking in the woods, as I like to do, you are very concerned about water sources. Because when you're empty and the thirst comes, you need to know what source you need to go to. And step one here is really very simple. We need to go to the Father. But I think we often miss this thought in its simplicity that if we want to attain spiritual good from God, we need to go to God. And we go to God in prayer. We need to remember, as James 1.17 says, that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father. And then James reminds us again in the fourth chapter that we often have not because we ask not. 
somehow we miss this so often, that if we want to attain spiritual good from the Lord, it will be attained by prayer as the main thing we can do to seek spiritual good. And really, God is so glorified when we do go to him in prayer. That's a sign that we're turning away from those worldly sources that we talked about, those worldly pools that we go to for fulfilling. And it means that we're considering God to be a greater source. We're considering God to be a higher source. And that consideration greatly honors him. Because so many people, as we said, seek their happiness in things other than God. It's like being content to drink out of mud puddles when we're so close to pristine alpine pools. And if you're from British Columbia like I am, there are plenty of beautiful, gorgeous alpine lakes that you can drink deeply from, such refreshing and pure water. But no, too often we're content to drink from the mud puddles of this world and seek to be refreshed and filled with them. But it's not going to work. I want us all to consider this morning, what are some of those mud puddles, if you will, that you go to drink from? What are those things that you think about that you really think, oh, if I could just get that, then I'd be happy. And if I could attain that, I'd be satisfied. Do you pursue happiness by pursuing fitness and beauty? Do you pursue happiness by pursuing the pleasures of food and drink? What about by the fun of hanging out with friends, playing games, traveling, going on adventures, being entertained? Or maybe a little closer to home, are you pursuing happiness by pursuing success in your schooling and education? What about in your work? What about in sports? Do you think attainments here will satisfy you? Or maybe even closer to home, are you pursuing happiness and fulfillment by having a well-ordered family, good kids, being churchgoers, maybe even doing family devotions. And you might not have realized it, but maybe you're pursuing fulfillment and happiness in these things. Even these are good things. Many of these are good things and gifts from the Lord. But when we think those are the sources of fullness in life, We're confused, and we're headed to our own destruction. Our happiness is like it's on the brink of a cliff, ready to fall at the first sign. No, we must go to a higher source, a fuller source, a purer source, and that source is the Father. And our passage this morning, it tells us how to go as we follow Paul's model. Um, He says, I bow my knees before the Father. That is, we come to God humbly. We come reverently, acknowledging him as the creator and us as the mere creation. It's an expression of um, leaving self-reliance to rely on God. And I think often for us, we've a lot of us have fallen out of the habit of bowing in prayer. But I'd encourage you, in your own devotions, in your own prayers, kneel before the Lord. It's the most common posture for prayer we see in scripture. So go humbly, but secondly, we see go to God confidently. We go to God as adopted children. We have the privilege of addressing him as Christ taught us, as Father. So even though we're coming humbly, kneeling like servants, we get to come boldly like children who know the good heart of their Father, who know the love of their Father. But we also go expectantly. We go believing that God is not stingy, 
but that if he's given us Christ, how will he not with him give us all other things? He says, he prays that God, according to the riches of his glory, would strengthen you. Our God, our Father, is rich. He has all glorious riches. And so we go to him knowing that he has all fullness. He has all supply that we could ever need. This is how we ought to approach God in prayer as we come to the latter petitions of this text. But before I go on, I think I'd be remiss to point out that you can't come to the Father in prayer unless he is your Father. Proverbs tells us that the prayer of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the righteous is his delight. So if you are to join with us as we, as a congregation today, learn how we ought to come to God to seek the Holy Spirit, to know the love of the Son, you need to come to God as Father, which means simply turning away from those pools that we drink in, the sins we drink in, the sinful ways in which we walk in this world, forsaking those as wholly unfit, as wholly self-indulgent, and turning to God and recognizing Him as the source of all good. To turn away from that and turn to faith in faith to God, trusting that we can do so because the Lord Jesus Christ has paid for all our sins. And when we put our hope in him, his righteousness becomes ours, such that we're holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. And if that is your hope and trust, then you can join us as we come to the Father today to desire and long after what's laid out for us in this prayer. The yous in this prayer are largely corporate. This is a prayer for us as a church, for you as Cornerstone, not only individually, but also corporately. So first, let's recognize that we do need to go to the source, to the Father. But secondly, we also need strength. We seek the Spirit for strength. And this is Paul's request in verse 16. He says that he, God, may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So what's Paul saying here? Paul is asking that the Holy Spirit would strengthen and empower our faith. We need spiritual strength to exercise faith. And so we need to understand uh, a bit of the relationship of these two things, faith and the Holy Spirit. We can think of faith, if you will, as like the hand that reaches out to grab hold of the promises of God. Or maybe, if we want to keep that hiking illustration, faith is like the legs by which we ascend the mount of God to find those refreshing alpine pools. And all true acts of worship are ultimately based and founded in faith. Faith is the source of all our acts of worship and devotion, but faith is also the source in our hearts of all the acts of love and obedience. To even pray this this prayer that's in our passage today takes an exercise of faith. And faith, we know, comes from the Holy Spirit. Through his regenerating work in our hearts, he implants in us the seed of faith. But we aren't just reliant on the Holy Spirit for the existence of faith, but also for the exercise of faith. When we're saved initially, we do have faith existing in our hearts, but we subsequently, every day, need to exercise faith like a spiritual muscle in order to ascend. Every time you pray, it's an act of faith. Every time you don't pray, it's an act of faithlessness, 
because we're not trusting in what God has told us. So if we think of faith as the means or the legs by which we ascend the mount, the Holy Spirit is like the energy that empowers our faith and enables it to go to God. And I think, sadly, we often try to exercise faith and live a life of faith, run the race of faith, fight the battle of faith, without relying on the Holy Spirit's power, without relying on that empowering presence that energizes our faith. Um, this reminded me of an illustration, again, of hiking. It's, it's my favorite hobby, so I get a lot of illustrations from it. And in British Columbia, where I'm from, there's so many great mountains and stuff to climb. You guys are just missing out on wonderful mountain climbing. But... Uh, I was determined to climb with my brother-in-law Colosseum Mountain. It's, it's as high as it sounds. It was a great fight. We were, we were going to camp at the top overnight and look at the stars. We had it all planned out, me and my brother-in-law. Uh, the problem was that three days before we started our hike, I decided to do this new diet called a ketogenic diet where you don't eat any sugar or car- carbohydrates. Some of you might be doing this right now. But I would not recommend doing it before you're about to do a 10-hour hike. And so I went into this hike without any sugar in my system. I thought I could survive on pepperoni sticks and cheese, but I was sorely mistaken. A couple hours in, I was so tired, way more tired than I should have been at that point. And then as we progressed, I started getting cramps in my muscles and headaches and nausea. And we were going slow and dusk was descending and... I would, don't think I would have survived unless my brother-in-law had given me some of his Powerade. He shared with me that re- replenishing nectar. And we ended up having to camp on the side of the trail halfway up the mountain, literally right beside a sign that said, beware of bears. It was not the most pleasant of experiences. But I thought, you know, I'm a strong hiker. I'm good. I don't need this extra energy from carbohydrates today. I'll be fine. But we make the same mistake when we try to exercise faith and ascend the mount of God, even worship right now, without the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. It's equally as foolish. It's climbing in our own strength without the empowering presence. We need to be praying to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5, when it says to be filled with the Holy Spirit, means to keep on being filled. We need daily strength and daily power. Uh, Paul talked about this. He says that in Colossians 1.29, I toil, struggling with all his energy that works powerfully in me. And Paul prays for the Thessalonians church in 2 Thessalonians 1.12 that God would fulfill their every resolve for good and their every work of faith by his power. We need God's power for our works of faith. So are you seeking to be filled with the Holy Spirit daily and looking to his strength to live this Christian life? Let's not forget, but always remember what Jesus said in Luke 11:13, that if you parents out there know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will our Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? What a gracious gift we have in the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit's strength as we go to the Father as the source But what is it we're going for? What is it we're seeking the Father for? What is it we're looking to the Spirit for strength for? Well, it's to know the Son and to enjoy his love. It's for communion with Christ. He says that Christ would dwell in your hearts by faith. And this isn't referring to that 
initial dwelling of Christ our hearts by faith, wherein the Holy Spirit regenerates us and makes our hearts his home. This is that real dwelling, dwelling together. You can have a home with someone, but not really dwell with them. This is talking about our communion and fellowship with Christ, being written to people who are believers in the church already. And then he expands this thought of Christ dwelling in our hearts in the next two verses. Christ dwelling in our hearts means that us being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ that passes knowledge. We're being called to know the unknowable love of Christ, the immeasurable love of Christ. And so what does this spirit-empowered, faith-filled fellowship with like with Christ look like? It looks like a love relationship. And Paul starts off in verse 17 saying that you being rooted and grounded in love. And some commentators debate whether this is being grounded and rooted in God's love for us or ours for him. Um, most of the Reformed commentators, and I'm convinced of this, that this is talking about our love to God, that we would be rooted and grounded in love to God and also to one another. And the thought would be, like, why would Paul say this? Why would Paul, when he's talking about how we need to know Christ's love, why would he bring up that we first need to be rooted and grounded in love? Well, I think the reason is because you don't fully appreciate or care about someone else loving you until you actually love and care for them. Um, unreturned love. If you don't love the one who loves you, you're not going to care that they love you. Um, another maybe silly illustration of this, my wife and I were recently dog-sitting for some family friends. And now, my wife's a dog person. She really loves dogs, but I'm not really. You know, I, a dog could maybe win me over eventually, but it would take a lot of work. So anyways, we were sitting this black lab named Charlie. He was actually quite a nice dog. And I was very willing to do my duty, feed the dog, walk the dog, clean up after the dog. But when I was sitting and reading and the dog would come up to me and try to put his head on my lap, I'd be like, shoot, get out of here. You're annoying me. Go away. And for some reason, the dog decided that he loved me and didn't care at all about my wife. And he was always coming up to me like, why are you coming here, dog? Go away. And then my wife would be sitting there. And if he ever came up to her, it was, oh, Charlie, Charlie, you're so cute. She loved him. But when I didn't care about the dog, when the dog showed interest in me, it meant nothing to me. My relationship with him was one of duty. And similarly... If your relationship to God is one of duty, where you say, God, I will come to church, I'll do this and that for you, I'll live a moral life. If, you, if that's the extent of your relationship and it's not one of entire love to God, then when God asks you to come and fellowship with him, when he calls you into his word, when he calls you into prayer, that will be a nuisance to you. That will be an annoyance to your routine and habits. If you don't have great love for the Lord, then his call to fellowship will feel like a hindrance to your other pursuits in life. And so I think Charles Simeon says this helpfully. He says, 
It's from every exercise of our own love to God that we shall acquire a greater enlargement of heart to admire and adore his love to us. And now we all know we fail at this. None of us loves God as we ought to. And that's why we're pursuing this together. Our text continues in verse 18 that Paul praying that we may have strength with all the saints. Our strength is often lacking on our own. We need one another to encourage us in our pursuit of God and our love of him. It's like when you're hiking in a group. When you're by yourself, you start to feel so tired. But when there's others around you working hard together, the strong can help the weak. And your energy levels fade and wane at different times. And that collective help and energy, we're able to strengthen one another and encourage one another in our pursuit of climbing the mountain of God. And here's what we're after. You know, this isn't just a prayer for ourselves individually, though it is, that we would all know the love and fellowship of Christ. But this needs to be our prayer, your heart for Cornerstone as well, that you corporately would be rooted and grounded in love to God and pursuing fellowship with Christ together. We're called to know these vast dimensions of Christ's love, the height, the length, the width, the breadth, to know this knowledge-surpassing love. This idea of comprehending actually means to take hold of, to take hold of the immeasurable love of Christ. And then to know, it's not just to know in the head, but to know experientially, to know in our hearts, the love of Christ that passes knowledge. That is, his love is both immeasurable and unfathomable. This is why we go to the Father in prayer. This is why we seek the Spirit for strength, that we might take hold of and know the immeasurable and unfathomable love of Christ. In Christ, there really is an ocean of love that we can never truly or fully, we can never fully wrap our arms around. That's made me think of the ocean. The ocean is so vast. And can anyone really know the ocean? Think with me. Who really knows the ocean? Is it the oceanologist who studies the currents, the plate tectonics, the um, content and particles of the water, the lives of the animals? Is it the oceanologist? Is it, or is it maybe it's the skin diver, the one who spends all day swimming, fishing, in and experiencing the ocean. Or maybe I think the best answer would be um, kind of like my family friends, the Crandalls, who um, Jay and Marg took their daughters, Jenny and Jocelyn, on in their high school years. They decided to homeschool them on a sailboat, and they set off from BC down to the coast of Mexico, across the Pacific Ocean to Australia, up to Hawaii and back. They had to know the currents and the wind, but they also, they fished and ate. They um, they scuba dived almost every day. They didn't just know the ocean, they experienced and enjoyed the ocean. And I think this ought to be, we want both as we pursue knowing the love of Christ, to know it theologically, to know those amazing, incredible, precise, and intricate truths of Christian theology. That's a gift. But then also to experience it, to swim in it, to know what it feels like and how it affects us. There's an ocean of love in Christ. And although we can't ever fully know the love of Christ, we can truly know it. We can truly experience it. And this is a subject, the love of Christ, a subject 
that we really need to think about. John Calvin said that from this passage, the love of Christ is held out to us as the subject which we ought to occupy ourselves daily in our daily and nightly meditation, a subject in which we ought to be wholly plunged. Isn't that great? We want to be wholly plunged in meditating on Christ's love. And our text talks about these different dimensions of Christ's love. And although I don't think Paul is meaning very precise um, images by each of those, he's talking about an immeasurable love, I think these dimensions actually, though, do provide a helpful um, like memory or meditation device that we can think of. Um, here's what I mean. We can think about, in our meditations, the breadth of Christ's love. That is, love is wide enough for the whole world. It's wide enough extending from sea to sea for all ages of people, all ethnicities of people, all nations. His love is so wide that it would reach out to you and me. We are at the ends of the earth, and Christ's love comes to us. His love is so wide. Uh, We can also think of the length, though. For all of those that Christ has called, he loved in eternity past. If you were one of Christ's sheep before you were born or the world was formed, he predestined you to adoption. But then in time, he actually had to work that out. In human history, as Christ came, he loved you then. As Galatians 2 says, that Christ loved me and gave himself for me. But his love also stretches into eternity future. His, we can never be separated from his love once we've received it. And it'll be love, love, love for all ages. His love is so long, but his love is so deep. Christ condescended to take on our form. He eternally united himself to a human nature in coming down to earth to bear sin, shame, scoffing root in our place, condemned he stood. And he didn't just sink low, but he reaches low. He reaches to the vilest sinner. He reaches to the depths of depravity in our own hearts to pluck us up from the miry clay and set us on the rock. He lifts us up. His love is so deep. No one, no, none of you here are lower than Christ's love can reach. His love is so deep. But his love is also so high. Not only does he raise us up when we believe in him, but he lifts us up into the heavenlies. We're seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus, heirs of all spiritual blessings in Christ, Paul told this church in Ephesians chapter 1. We're called kings and priests. His love is so high, so ennobling, so amazing. And we ought to meditate on these and think about these truths in relation to ourselves, but also in this church, that God's called also a people to himself. He's lifted a people up. He's loved a people. Desire, cornerstone, to know the love of Christ. And as I was preparing, I was reminded of this song I learned in church as a child. I just had this simple line that said, I've got love like an ocean in my soul. And how true is that? That every believer has an ocean of love in his or her soul. And I know we so often don't experience it. We're often only knee-deep at best, but there's more available to us. There's more for us. I want you to believe it and know it. There's more in Christ's love than you've now experienced. And I want us to go after it. 
And if we've seen that we go to the Father as the source, seeking the Spirit for strength, that we might be filled with that substantial, satisfying love of Christ, here's where this is all ramping up to. Here's the sum. The sum is that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. This is Paul's request in verse 19. This is the very climax of our passage. It's the most bold of requests. Uh, Charles Simeon again says that the apostle's prayer rises at every successive step till he arrives at a height of expression which, if it had not been dictated by inspiration, one should have been ready to condemn as blasphemy. That's how wild this request is, that you and I would be filled with the fullness of God? As Charles Simmons says, that almost sounds blasphemous, but this ought to be our desire. Our great heart's desire ought to be nothing less than to be filled with the fullness of God. To, and to be filled with the fullness of God really is, in our passage, it is to be filled with Christ's love. God can't be separated into parts. God is one, and God, Scripture tells us, is love. When we're filled with Christ's love, we are filled with God. And we're not just filled with love. When we're filled with Christ's love, that necessarily includes with it everything else that God is to us in Christ. When we're filled um, to the full, basking in the great love of Christ, we also are filled with hope. We're also filled with peace. We're also filled with joy in our sorrows and kindness and love for others. And to be filled in this way, oh, this is a full soul. This is the highest needs of the soul of man met. This is our true happiness, to be filled with all that God is to us through Christ. When you're filled with God, you don't need to destroy yourself seeking after fullness in the world. When you're filled with God, you're filled to be able to pour out an overflow in acts of worship and love and mercy and justice to others. When you're filled with God, you're enabled to endure and persevere through the trials and temptations that inevitably come our way. When you're a true Christian filled with God, the lows aren't so low. The highs are higher. And the everyday mundane is deeper because all is coming from a place of being filled with God. And so we can't lose. As a believer in Christ, we cannot lose. And so this ought to lead us to praise like it did for Paul, who exclaims in verse 20 and 21, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. The end of all this, the end of all things is the glory of God. This is the way in which, as this text says, God will receive glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. As the church delights in Christ and Christ loves the church, God is glorified. As you in your life, really do see and experience that Christ's love is more satisfying and more 
filling and fulfilling than all those sources of happiness in this world, God receives great glory in the church. When, the, when we collectively show by our actions and words that Christ is our treasure, that his love is what we prize, not the things that the world tells us to prize, God receives glory in the church and through Christ Jesus. And so this is how we best pursue God's glory and our own happiness when we come to the Father seeking the strength of the Spirit to know and experience the love of the Son when we're seeking to be filled with God. A short word of just application as we close. First, I want, I want us all recognize where it is in your life that you are seeking fulfillment. What things other than God are you going to? What worldly pools are you drinking from hoping that they'll really fill the emptiness in your soul? Firstly, recognize that. But then secondly, recognize that all fullness of happiness and joy is found in God and that there's so much more available than what you currently have. And desire this. Recognize that there's more and desire more. And so thirdly and lastly, go after it in prayer. Paul has given us a model prayer here. If we are to attain fullness in Christ, if we are to desire and seek after knowing the love of Jesus Christ, we must go after it in prayer. We must follow Paul's example here and go to the Father to daily supplicate for the strength of the Spirit that we might comprehend and know the great love of Jesus Christ. So pray this for yourself, that you would know Christ's love. Pray this for Cornerstone Church, that you would be filled with the Spirit and the love of Christ, and for everyone that you know who doesn't know the love of Jesus Christ. Pray for those unbelieving hearts too, that they would know the fullness that comes from being filled with God in Christ. Let's pray for this now together. Heavenly Father, we do come to you. We bring our hearts to you, knowing that you have all fullness. Lord, we confess that we so often seek to be satisfied with these lesser things when you have infinite joy and blessedness. Lord, we desire to come to you that we may be filled. Lord, we ask for the strength of your Holy Spirit, that your Holy Spirit would fill these temples, that he would control us and lead us and guide us and purify us from sin, purify us unto good works, but most of all that he would strengthen our faith and empower our faith to truly believe and apprehend all the love available to us in Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, thank you for this son. Thank you that he came and bled and died that he might buy a people for God and raise us up to be with us forever. Lord, we long for that day when we will in perfection know the love of the Son without the hindrances of the flesh and sin. God, give us a longing to know the love of the Son in glory. But Lord, help us to love him now. Root this church. Ground this church in love to Jesus Christ. And then Lord, please grant manifestations of your love. Manifestations of your grace. That Christ would be everywhere in this place. That this would be a church filled with the fullness of God. Oh Lord, that we would be so bold to ask to be filled with your fullness. Be glorified, O Lord, as we seek this. Receive honor as we seek to cherish you above all else. We pray that you will bless these requests. Please um, inflame this desire in our hearts and lead us more and more into prayer for this. 
as we pray in the name of our mediator, Jesus Christ. Amen.